I can certainly say I don't have a clue, but I can make some guesses. What kind of wisdom will people need to master to overcome the negative societal changes or psychological changes you talk about? These are terrible questions, by the way. Welcome back to the World After COVID mini-series of the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll be hearing insights and forecasts from some of the world's leading thinkers on what our post-pandemic world may look like, for good and for bad, and what kinds of wisdom may best help us navigate this new world. Igor, my friend, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. All right, then. So let's dive in. What are we talking about? So today we continue a mini-series, and the question is, what kind of wisdom will people need to master to overcome major negative societal and or psychological changes after the pandemic? This is one of the last questions I asked a series of experts in this project that I conducted last year. Right. So we have, like, prior to this, uh, we kind of looked at some answers around what do they think the negative societal or, or psychological change could be, and now it's like, okay, keeping that that, in, though that might be the case, what kind of wisdom right. do we need to avoid those or overcome those or supersede those, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Igor, I have got some good ones for you today. I'm going to start. I'm not going to tell you who it is. It's going to be a secret, and then we can talk about it afterwards. Looking to sources of resilience that we all have access to um, is one of the best strategies that um, that we can use to kind of buffer against these increases in mental health problems that are very normal to expect after a major stressor. Um, now, resilience is, um, um, I like to uh, Anne Mastin's way of describing this, where she describes it as ordinary magic. Um, resilience is promoted by many different um, kinds of behaviors and attitudes um, that, that many of us have access to, but I'm just going to highlight one um, that is among the most um, consistent sources of resilience across lots of studies, which is um, social support. Um, so our ability to um, feel emotionally supported um, by others in our lives when we face stress is a factor that um, has been shown to buffer against, you know, not only anxiety and depression and the mental health consequences of stressors, um, but Sheldon Cohen's work has even shown that um, social support buffers against changes in the immune system that happen when we experience stress, changes in physical health um, that can accompany stress. And so, you know, one of the challenges of the pandemic is that our access to social support has also been affected. We're not seeing people in the same way we used to. You know, of course, tools like, like Zoom, how you and I are interacting right now, um, don't fully take the place of that. But I think the more creative we can be about, um, about building those um, support networks into our daily lives, even when we're not seeing the people we normally see, is going to be an incredibly important um, way to buffer against some of the um, sort of normative mental health problems. Um, problems that we expect to see on the rise um, and evidence suggests are on the rise during the pandemic. It's interesting stuff. Who is this? So this is uh, Katie McLaughlin. She's Associate Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard. Uh, she's a clinical psychologist, but also studies behavioral development in childhood and adolescence. And this is from November, towards the end of November, right? Yeah, it's one of the last uh, recordings that I made last year. Right, right. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm particularly interested in this idea about she outlines some quite specific benefits, including physiological benefits for the immune system of mm -hmm. social support. And I'm interested in your thoughts about which of those benefits might we lose when we use remote technological tools and which might we still be able to access. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I am a little bit ambivalent about this, Charles. And one of the reasons is because some of this work that Katie refers to, especially the work by Sheldon Cohen, I really like it. But I'm also wary that whenever it comes to this kind of interface between the social and the physiological, and then you bring in the immune system in addition mm, to that, mm. it becomes complex very quickly. And I think some of the initial findings from that body of research have been have raised some questions, to put it mildly. Mm. So whether it's that straightforward that, you know, social support and just being around other people helps you to buffer against mm. stress, or if there are additional mm. factors that may be playing a role, and whether those experiments that Sheldon Cohen has done of sufficient sample size to really make strong generalizations, mm. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think the idea that you're talking about is a good one. Namely, well, what does the... What is the value of social interactions when we cannot really meet in person and what is uh, the implication for our well-being? I think a lot of the people who have been stuck at home and who couldn't see their loved ones for a long time over the course of the last year and a half, Mm. they uh, were able to pivot this phrase that a lot of us have encountered numerous times over the course of the pandemic to this kind of virtual interactions. And so if you were able to manage it successfully, I think you probably can benefit from it and get sort of similar type of support that you would get otherwise. Yeah, you can touch people and some other Mm. People on the series like talked about like you could potentially simulate that by touching yourself. Yeah, we talked about that in previous episodes, but you can still have this kind of sense of community, sense of belonging, and other benefits that are going hand in hand with having uh, this feeling of connectedness and support from others. Yeah, yeah, it was Wendy Berry Mendez, I think, who brought up that. That's idea. right. I, I was torn when I was choosing a quote for this topic because okay. another one that I really liked was from Yukiko Ushida, who spoke about an idea of a social security network, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. And she's kind of essentially saying, if if we accept that there are these benefits to you know social support, should we be like we have a social security in finance in, in the UK, right? You have a certain you know you, you won't fall behind below a certain threshold of income because your taxes will pay for, you know, unemployment benefit or something. You know, so there's a, a network or a net to capture you. Should I, th- I think she was getting at this idea that perhaps we should start building social structures to ensure that people have access to these, the benefits that come from being connected, particularly, you know, because some of us are more social than others, but right. those benefits perhaps should be accessible to all, including people that might not have extended social networks. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, also having the resources to provide sort of infrastructure so that those who want to have social networks but are not capable because of money and other things mm. to engage in online interactions because mm-hmm. it's either too expensive or they don't mm-hmm. have the technology or they don't mm-hmm. have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. All those things, I think, came to, to light over the course yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah, and how the access to that is unequally distributed, yeah. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to go on to my next quote. Sounds good. I think the wisdom to avoid these outcomes is to um, keep in mind how vital interactions with um, strangers, acquaintances, less familiar co-workers are for our own mental health and for societal health. And just consciously, deliberately put ourselves in those situations, even when they're awkward, 
um, and communicate warmth and positivity, you know, even masked um, as we can. And if we make those a priority, we'll keep our own um, individual and collective well-being uh, guarded. Well, Eagle, who is this? Uh-huh. So this is Barbara Fredrickson, and she's a distinguished professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And uh, Barb is known for, she's a superstar in positive psychology, whatever okay. that means. Right. And she's known for so-called Broden and Built theory, it's like oh, advocating okay. for the role of positive emotions. Yeah, Broden and Built. Yeah, I have some pickles with that. I've even published some work sort of uh, arguing against some of the claims in that theory, but whatever. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, we have our academic discussions. Fair enough. Um, I mean, I this I love this, this and mm-hmm. I've just basically thrown it in because it really highlights something that I brought up early on in the mini series, which was um, something that I thought that was kind of overlooked, perhaps a little bit. And I was just trying to um, crowbar it in there was mm-hmm. about interactions with the benefits of interactions with strangers, not just right. interactions yeah, about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. not people that we that are primary sort of social group, but like those small interactions that you have that you probably don't at first realize are valuable. Mm-hmm. I've definitely felt that myself. And I and we also touched on it because she talks there about even mask. She says, you know, have social interactions with warmth and positivity, even when you're masked. Um, we've spoken about that before, you know, how it's so hard to communicate warmth and positivity in just small gestures to strangers when you're masked. Um, right. But but it seems to serve a really important function. When I was I was thinking as I was kind of getting ready for this episode, I was like, why why do I care about interactions with strangers? You know, um, you do? kind of why why would why I do, but why should I? Right. And there's no benefit really i mean the, the definition of a stranger like well sort of kind of along with the definition of a stranger is this idea you're not going to see this person again it's not you're not investing in a in a, a relationship so what's yes. going on there and it kind of struck me that interacting with people you don't know and having positive experiences of that creates in me a faith in humanity that humanity is good and kind and so that for me is the value of just walking onto the street, you go and buy a chocolate bar and the people that you interact with are nice and polite and kind. Interesting. Seem, seems like it should be nothing, but it, it just reassures you that, that there is, that people are largely good. I mean, that's kind of how, that's my, that's, I think what's going on for me. You know, I don't know what the your true self are. is good. All people <laughs> are good inside. No, it's well, uh, yeah, maybe I, <laughs> yeah. What's that? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But, well, it's it a, just, but it's a it's a it's a belief that a lot of us have. Right, right. Yeah. What do you think about that? Hmm. I think that you're probably right. It's a bit more complicated than that. But I do uh, agree with your sentiment uh, about the important role of people whom you would not consider to be your close friends mm. in your general navigation and sort of well-being. The simple example that I would think here is imagine that all those interactions that you have had before the pandemic, yeah. you know, be it in the store, in a coffee shop, mm-hmm. with the barista, or you know, the, 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 when you just enter an elevator, yeah. and they would all be replaced by robots. Ooh. Don't okay, like and so you walk into you walk into a coffee shop, and there's just like a robot standing there and giving you the coffee right away, yeah. and it's perfect, right? Like it's perfect. It's like it's probably better than what you get from a barista. Let's assume that is the case, and yet something eerie and 
artificial and not quite as meaningful would come from that scenario, uh, from that alternative world that you would find yourself in. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. But I don't think it's because... uh, Mm. I I feel like maybe it's just the way how we construe, like represent the experiences of being in this different type of environments automatically involves other people, whether we will deem them important or like essential, mm-hmm. close friends, family, mm-hmm. whatever, or not, uh, th- those people are essential in the way for the experience. And otherwise it becomes, yeah, otherwise we would be preferring robots, especially if they're more consistent. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Minority Report. You remember in, when he goes, <laughs> when Tom Cruise is on, he goes as soon as he walks into the shops, like clothes yes. shops. I think he gets like the, the cameras kind of scan his eyes and, and, you know, refer to his character and say, oh, you were looking at those pair of jeans last time. You know, um, that's definitely eerie and not something that I would want to. Uh, well, we have that already, right? Like with, uh, you know, well, often the AI does work quite as well. Like, often it's like after you bought that uh, lawnmower, you get like ads for 20 other lawnmowers. Uh, but sometimes <laughs> it does happen before, right? Yeah, so I just, just bought a lawnmower. I don't once. need a lawnmower, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that happens quite often, right? Like, I, I just been on the trip to Italy. Why do you give yeah. me t- cheap tickets to Italy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but, but certainly but something you, like Minority uh, Report. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just want to go back to you. You said the people are there. The, I, I th- if It sounded like your argument had a bit of a circle in it. Like you said, the, the people, it's important that other people are there because they're important. <laughs> no, I'm saying because they're part of the experience, because they are not, you can decouple them from the experience. When you think of the, and, and maybe if you were, you know, like, a, if, if you, you've been raised by wolves, mm. like right. Mowgli, yeah. and then, then you wouldn't have that type of representation, uh, but we haven't okay. been raised by that, right? And so mm. we have certain representations of what is the, what, what is the trip to uh, a supermarket look like? Mm. What about a coffee shop? What about going to, well, like doing anything actually? And people are always there because that's how it has been before the pandemic at least. Mm. So for me, it's just like part of the experience. All right, Eagle, let's see what you've got for us. Sounds good. Two other components of wisdom, namely self-reflection and acceptance of uncertainty and diversity of perspectives. Both of these are in very much short supply right now, and there is no sign of abatement. There's a critical need for wise leadership that has the power of inspiring people to change their attitudes and behaviors in a major way. I'm optimistic that the homo sapiens, which literally means a wise man, and of course a woman, will slowly but surely succeed in breaking the vicious circle that we are seeing now and convert that into a virtuous cycle. All right. Mm. That voice sounds familiar, Igor. Who is this? So this is Dilip Jeste, and he's the Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, He was American Psychiatric Association president uh, a few years ago. And is also founding president of International College of Geriatric Psychoneuropharmacology. Okay. Um, So he's a fellow wisdom researcher. Brilliant. So this is, uh, and he is also a medical doctor, right? So 
Um, and a medical doctor. Well, primarily a medical doctor. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, I mean, the, there's so many quotes to pick from on this topic. What, what is it about this that has leapt out for you? Okay. So, I mean, you picked a lot of social themes. Uh-huh. talked about uh, social support and compassion and yeah. sympathy and yeah, perspective robots. taking. I thought yeah. I had to pick something that's more cognitive that okay. has, because that's another sort of, well, just to balance it out, but also because it, it's an, another key feature of this pandemic. It's not only the social, but also the informational dimension that has been mm. very uh, challenging to overcome, right? Like the mm. constant influx of new information, the uncertainty mm. about how to predict what to do next. Uh, mm. Constantly, you're like playing this game of whatever I do now will have consequences not earlier than two weeks from now because right. of the nature of the disease. And I think this kind of acknowledgement of uncertainty and uh, perspectives, as uh, Dilip is talking about, is fundamental here. That's why I picked it. What do you think about it? Well, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it represents something that's come up a lot, you know, the, the, these, uh, these ideas. And I'm just, I'm not, sh- I wonder if humans or, or modern humans in, in our society can, can, um, increase how much uncertainty they can accept or right. is that possible? Cause obviously it would be helpful. Um, but, can we live that way? Like not really being able to plan, not really being able to have a vision that inspires us of the next month, the next year. Should we, should we be adapt? I mean, do you think this is even possible? Like that we can just sort of change our tolerance for uncertainty? Well, I think I have a quite, I'm quite more optimistic about our capability of acknowledging uncertainty, actually, than you really? probably are. And the reason for it now, I will actually go in a more evolutionary direction okay. or in the direction of cultural differences. The majority of the world that is actually not affluent, vaccinated, and Western mm-hmm. experiences uncertainty quite a bit more on a regular basis. Right. And over centuries has mm-hmm. experienced much more than we have experienced before the pandemic. Mm. So like this kind of base base rate default response of how much uncertainty can we tolerate? Oh, we can tolerate a lot of uncertainty. Right, right. Our ancestors have tolerated so much uncertainty. (laughs) I mean, they didn't know if they wouldn't be eaten up by some wild beast the next day. Yeah. And so I'm sure Mm. they had different sort of strategies for dealing with it. And even if you think about sort of Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, and even all the way until the 20th century, really, Mm. you know, even the Spanish flu, we didn't have the vaccines. Mm. We didn't have anything. Mm. And yet, be, so the, the amount of uncertainty, well, like you go on the street and you'll die <laughs> or you stay home and you'll die or you just, <laughs> and then it's like, well, that's life, yeah. you know? And but so, so I feel we, like we can yeah. do more. That That's, that's fair. Yeah. It's a, a very strong argument, but at the same time, we obviously really don't like it because as soon as we have the means, we try and limit it as much as possible because it's, it's sort of, it seems to be an earmark of a, uh, privileged, uh, wealthy society to reduce yeah. uncertainty as much as possible. So something that seems to be one of the first things to, to go. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we probably, like, if we don't have the stress, we don't want to be stressed because it mm. activates being alert and uh, paying more mm. attention to the environment. Mm. And, uh, of course, that's more costly. But, mm. you know, if you use that same logic, um, 
you know, eating chips is delicious, right? Like fatty food, oh, yeah. uh, like you know, no, fries. Mm. And if if you if it if you didn't like regulate yourself, you would probably just eat that. But you mm. also know that that's not good for you. So in the mm. same way, just avoiding uncertainty all the time, I think of it as like eating chips. Oh, it's delicious. Mm. It's, it's so nice not to think about you know. Uh, not to worry about uh, things and not to think that the context matter and mm. different experiences for different mm. people matter. And you can just apply the same sort of general rule to all situations. Mm-hmm. But it's dangerous because you'll become obese, like using this chips metaphor, yeah, or gotcha, gotcha. you will just not survive. I like it. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So you, you're you're suggesting, yes, we can tolerate it to a much greater degree than than we currently think we can. That, that's good news. Um, and in fact, that it does us um, some good to be reminded of the fact that we can tolerate it as well. Well, it, it has a lot of functions, right? It reminds us of our, it, it keeps us humble. It reminds yeah. us of our limitations, of yeah. things that we don't know. Yeah. It, uh, it, I think what you, what you tried to get at the beginning here probably is that we don't like it. And the immediate response for many people is, oh, there's no uncertainty. They'll just avoid it. And I think like just be aware of it and reflect on the uncertainty mm. of mm. different pieces of information. This uh, the focus on reflection mm. is what Dilip is talking about here, yeah. is a really adaptive under the context in which the information is inherently uncertain. Like a lot of things come from scientists and scientists don't have all the pieces of information yet. Mm. They have been changing their guidelines mm. and instead of just rejecting the new piece of information because they, well, you seem to be contradicting to what you just said half a year yeah. ago. Yeah. You know, it's like mask wearing, no mask wearing, like, yeah. like keep the masks on, now you can keep the masks off. <laughs> like I'm so confused. This is so much uncertainty. Mm. And uh, right. what I'm saying is that well, you kind of have to reflect on it and accept it because guess what? That's how science works yeah. and that's how we learn. Yeah. I, I like to think of things in a sort of scientific model way, you know, like, you know, you have a car and, and I think it's quite a nice balance between not constantly living it with complete chaos that I do not know what the right. model is. So I, you know, I, I have nothing to work with, but more this kind of scientific, scientific model approach. It's like with the information that I have to date, this is how I'm thinking things work. But I know right. that it's not right. And when new information comes in, I'll tweak it a little bit. So it's a nice balance between just kind of throwing your hands up in the air and saying, oh, nothing's certain, so much uncertainty, who knows anything, That's um, right. which, which sounds problematic. Just kind of go, this yeah. is the model I'm currently working with, but it's no doubt wrong and I'll update it as we go. Yeah, like not this kind of fatalism that you often mm. have in this mm. uh, really silly stereotype of Russians. I recently read like, you know, the reports of Russian cases going up mm-hmm. and uh, somebody in the mm. Guardian of all places, which I, is a newspaper I actually respect, mm-hmm. like writes, well, um, you know, they're just fatalistic. I mean, you know, for, for centuries they couldn't trust yeah. their government. Why should they right. be trusting their government now? And right. of right. course they would not be interested in vaccinations because they're not trusting anything. They would rather die. Uh-huh. And <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, this is first of all a horrible caricature. I mean, right. boy, like read up a little bit on your Russian history. It's a little yeah. bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But uh, the point is, yeah, not that type of uncertainty that is associated with fatalism. Mm, mm. That's not what we're talking about. I think there's a clear line between mm. being uncertain and just give up. Yeah. And uncertainty is generally probably has baggage of being a bad thing. Maybe it needs a bit of a rebranding. <laughs> it's like, it, it, you're you're aligning if you begin to accept that things are uncertain 
your models are getting better. Your your understanding of the world is getting better because the world is actually uncertain. So yeah, yeah, not, there's a misconception. I mean, yeah. also like if you think about it, the, for instance, from the scientific point of view, statistically, um, mm-hmm. if you don't have uncertainty, there is nothing to explain. If everything right. is certain, you just can mm-hmm. like well. Uh, if there's there no is. variability, there's no evolution, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. uh, the basic principle yeah. of human evolution is that you actually have variability. Or if there's no variability in psychology, then it's just all inertia. I mean, yeah, it's also not how it works. So and uncertainty is good. It's actually an opportunity to, to explain something, to g- gain more knowledge. Okay, let's, let's have a listen to what else you've got for us, Igor. Sounds good. What we need is wise leadership, which, um, at least in the U.S., we don't have a lot of recently. Um, We need wise leaders who can balance the values of um, liberty and privacy against um, the values of uh, saved lives. Um, That's important. Uh, We need wise leadership to enact education policies that treat all children as um, equal future citizens whose uh, whose education matters to us all. Okay. It's another familiar voice. Who are, who are we hearing? So this is my friend, Valerie Tiberius, again, yes. who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota. And she was on this podcast earlier on. She was. She was on this podcast. I, and she, has she appeared in the miniseries maybe as well? Yes, I believe so. We, we keep on going back to Valerie Tiberius. You know. well, we need uh, our go-to philosopher. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a shame. We, we need to probably get more philosophers on, actually. They have some useful insights to share with us. Okay, so what is this quote getting at? What is this quote getting at that, that's a theme? What theme is this kind of leaning towards? So this is more about balancing different perspectives and interests on the pandemic. And so this is also from July 2nd, so almost a year ago. And by Mm. the time this episode will be released, it will be more than a year ago, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because I think even during the first uh, wave and after the first wave in the summer, when everybody's like, oh, so much better, the cases are going down, let's open up, let's open up. And there was quite a bit of discussion, uh, both in North America and other parts Mm. of the world, Mm. about how much opening up should we do, Mm. should we prioritize education, uh, Mm. have kids in school or not. And I think uh, that's what she's talking about, how to balance these different interests instead of just following one voice. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is the, the spectrum that you're most interested in, this balancing liberty versus, I guess it's the liberty not to wear masks and do what you want to do versus what, what seems to be good for the group? Is that, is that the, the specific kind of spectrum that you're interested in talking about? Or is it just the idea of balancing I like the idea of balancing, but I think the one, the balance of freedom and mm. the privacy mm. uh, against sort of a civic uh, responsibility mm. for protecting the vulnerable mm. is uh, probably one of the key ones that have mm. been emerging whenever the debates about yeah. what to do in the face of lockdowns uh, came to light. And I mean, this might not be exactly the time to mention it, but do, from your sort of cultural psychology experience is that something i mean i'm guessing that's something that varies a lot from place to place in terms of you know how much individual liberty people are prepared to sacrifice in in the name of the societal benefit 
That is true. I mean, but it's the question is maybe not framed properly because the even the term sacrifice right sure. away assumes that there is a certain hierarchy or mm. even that they are on equal footing. Mm. Whereas I think in numerous societies that prioritize the group, often described as collectivist, you have a greater sense of, well, obligation towards supporting and others, especially those who are vulnerable, mm. following rules, duty and obedience and mm. support of the family. And mm. I, I think it's just natural that whenever you focus on those characteristics, uh, you would be uh, much more likely to prioritize the civic responsibility over mm. the individual freedoms and so on. And indeed, that's what you have seen over the course of the first waves of the pandemic. So before the vaccines, the collectivist societies have been doing much better with mask mm. wearing, mm. which, you know, arguably don't really, I mean, it has been highly politicized in some parts of the United States. Mm. But really, how is that even going into preventing your freedom word like freedom of expressing your, your face freedom of smiling freedom of smiling you can well you can still smile you can put a smile on your mask and in fact that such such masks exist kind that's of right my mom has one of those masks actually <laughs> yeah so anyways i think i'm more interested in the balance question because it's it's for me the most difficult one to address here and I actually want to poke on this one a little bit because, you know, everybody's talking about balancing. Mm. And I've been talking about balancing. Aristotle has been talking about balancing. But how exactly do we balance? Mm. And so what mm. is the psychology of this balance? Yeah. And that's something I don't know. Yeah, because are you in your mind balancing between something that you think's right and something that you think's wrong? Because that wouldn't make sense to do. Why would you... Or, or would you just... Would it be some humility around... What you think is right. Yeah, and you go, well, I'm 80% right, so I'll, I'm 80% That's confident right. I'm right, so I'll, I'll shift a little bit along the spectrum. Yeah. yeah, so I think it has a lot to do with the open-mindedness to those perspectives where you may at the beginning even think that they're just wrong and, and be mindful of your biases and what you think is preferable. I mean, you know, I'm all for civic uh, responsibility. This is my baseline response. Yeah. But I, I think it is important to listen to people who have mm -hmm. you know like uh, whose businesses are at stake yeah. and if they don't get any support from the government to survive mm -hmm. what are mm -hmm. what else are they supposed to do mm -hmm. um, so i think that's partially what the first steps of balancing is about but then what to do afterwards i don't know mm. so do you have any thoughts about what what because it's i have never really thought about that what psychologically go is going on when you try to balance you know take take a balanced position like what are you balancing between are you just sort of because surely you just try and put yourself where you think is right well i think what yeah but i think what's happening at the beginning is that because if you think you're right uh you may right away discount the other opinion in the first place you may not even mm. consider it so i think the question is not necessarily about how to balance which is as i said like almost mm. impossible to answer mm. Mm. but rather this first step where because of the tribalism and political polarization mm. you're at a stage where even the initial input is filtered mm. out at the, at the onset mm. so mm. you don't even get to that point where you're right. like oh there's this other opinion oh let yeah. me think a little bit about it so first yeah. of all you will not hear that opinion you definitely will not want to hear and think about it mm. as i think like if you get past those two steps then you actually mm. can have a discussion Mm. And unfortunately, we didn't have as much discussion, I think, about some of those things. So discussions have been done behind closed doors.
Yeah, I, I was reading um, the other day about this idea of we compare when we when we think about the, the say the other groups idea. We like compare the say the best of best version of our idea with the the caricature version of their idea. So the one the the perspective that we hear about from the other side of the aisle or whatever is quite often the loudest noisiest uh simplest right uh, least nuanced um version of the other side of the fence it, you know because those are the ones that will gather gather our attention and, and enable us to be outraged but there will be a lot of sort of moderates which are uh, probably more representative of, of a larger number of people but they just we don't ne- necessarily uh get to hear those so much that's true. And uh, there's this idea of an ideological Turing test. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's basically, well, the Turing test like, is uh, the notion mm-hmm. that you want to create Are a machine. Are you speaking to a computer? Or, yeah, right. and you will not recognize that it's a computer. And if it passes mm-hmm. the test of being a human, that's like uh, okay. a really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a really good. An ideological Turing test is imagine you're talking to the out group that are the opposite on the political spectrum okay but how uh, can you convince them can you take their perspective to such an extent that that they would find your argument compelling from Mm. their position Mm. okay so like and if you are able to create an argument from Mm. the perspective of this group that you actually maybe despise or definitely disagree with Mm. then you will be passing the ideological turing test like can it. be a powerful tools, but often, oh, well, often, mostly not used, of course. No, but I suppose you probably would, you would need to be constructing an argument that takes into account their values, what they care about. Exactly. Not, not what you care about, yeah. And the question is, can you do that? Can you actually mm. really seriously engage in so-called good faith perspective taking? Yeah. It That's feels, a tricky part. Yeah, it feels like you could from a sort of an intellectual game perspective. That's not good faith, though, is it? That's bad faith. But if someone just said, (laughs) these are the values, this is the outcome you're trying to, or where you're trying to get, can you find a path between them? It feels like you could. Well, but the thing is, you have to do it to such an extent, otherwise you Mm. wouldn't be able to pass the ideology, that the other group will find this kind of backbone, the ideological perspective compelling. Yeah. And so can you do that? That's a question. And if you could, it would probably temper your own exactly. perspective to a certain extent yeah so yeah, that's what uh, this trick is about but yeah it hasn't yeah. been used very much all right it's good to know there are some tricks out there all right so i think we probably should wrap this one up let's wrap it up okay i will see you next time Igor. take care and that's it for today's episode of the world after covid miniseries thank you to our listeners Igor. big question if people want to know more about the project where do they go they can go to the www.worldaftercovid.info. Please stay well and safe. Goodbye.